It's my desire to live for Jesus. It's my desire to be like Him, though often I failed and brought Him much shame. It's my desire to live for Him. If you could see where Jesus brought me from to where I am today. You would know the reason why I love him so. Now you can take this world's wealth and riches. I don't need earth's fame. It's my desire to live for Him. It's my desire to help someone today, someone who may have failed to see the was lost, but I found my way to God. Now it's my desire to live for Him. If you could see where Jesus brought me from to where I am today, you would know I love him so. Now you can take this world's wealth and riches. I don't need earth's fame. It's my desire to live for him. If you could see where Jesus brought me from to where I am today, you would know the reason why I love him so. Now you can take this world's wealth and riches, I don't need earth's fame, it's my desire to live for song's going to go perfectly with the message today. And by the way, if I bomb on this message, I want you to know this morning it was awesome. <laughs> Just so you know, okay, I'm just going to tell you right up front, at least from my perspective, it was the best one to be in. So anyway, take your Bible, turn over the book of Philippians now. Why rejoice? That's what we've been dealing with. Why rejoice? Philippians chapter 4, just verse Let's just look at that one verse real quickly and kind of kicks things off. But obviously the book of Philippians is a great book and, 
And we're going to note a couple of things. We've noted a number of things from it already, but the Bible says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And uh, from the book of Philippians, we're going to find a number of reasons why we're to rejoice. Now, Paul and Silas, they had come to Philippi. Uh, There they would meet Lydia. Lydia was likely the first convert in Europe. At least she's the first convert we have on record in Europe. She was obviously a very wealthy woman, or at least a woman of means, because she would open her house up to Paul and Silas and allow them to basically put their operation center for the ministry right there in her home. Paul also would deliver a girl from demon possession. And as a result of that, there would be an uprising in the city, and it would lead to his imprisonment. Now, we know from there that he ends up in a Philippian jail. And we understand that at, uh, later on that evening at midnight, we find Paul and Silas singing and praising God. That night, the prison shook and the gates and bars opened up. And that jailer, we know that he was prepared to take his own life. I mean, there the, 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 the inmates had fled, so to speak, and he was confident and he was sure that he had failed to follow through with his responsibilities. In those days, if you lost a prisoner, in those days, if you didn't fulfill your obligation or responsibility in that particular job, you took your life or someone else would. And so he was confident that he had failed in his duties. But Paul speaks up and says, hey, wait a second, before you take your life, hold on. I want you to know we're all still here. And so Paul would share the gospel with this man and also his household, and they would all be saved. What a beginning to the church at Philippi, an amazing beginning. And a special relationship would begin from that point on, and it would continue between Paul and the Philippians. The church followed him, of course, in his journeys, and they would consistently and lovingly meet his needs along the way. But while he was in Jerusalem, he would be arrested, and of course, from that point on, for a couple of years, the Philippians would lose sight of the Apostle Paul. When they would finally find him again, he would be in a Roman jail or a prison or being held captive. They couldn't figure out why they had lost track of him. Well, he was now being incarcerated, if you will. And so in this case, the Philippians say, boy, we still want to meet the need of this special man in our life, this man of God that met our needs, that continued to encourage us in the faith. And so they meant to send him a gift again, and they took their pastor and said, hey, pastor, why don't you take this gift to the apostle Paul? And so Epaphroditus made his way there to Rome. He met with the Apostle Paul and he shared this gift that the Philippians had given. And so Paul now, he writes this epistle and he hands it back over to Epaphroditus and says, take this back to the church. I want to thank them and I want to express my appreciation and my love for them. This epistle is not an epistle of correction or condemnation. No, this epistle, Philippians is an epistle of concern and compassion. This particular letter is written to believers and it addresses the glorious Christian experience. Throughout the book of Philippians, we find reason after reason why believers ought to rejoice. We talked about a few of those already. We said that one of the reasons we ought to rejoice in the book of Philippians is the promise. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, the Bible says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. 
The passage states that God had begun this good work in you and I as believers, and He's going to continue that work till it is completed. Continue that work till we're literally in His presence forever. Then we said not only the promise, but we need to note the prize. We turned our attention to Philippians chapter 3, and we, we noted some things there about the Apostle Paul and his perspective and his outlook there. And, and Paul was saying there in chapter 3, the past has no power over me any longer. I am free from its bondage. I'm free from its enslavement. I am free now to diligently pursue the presence and the person of Jesus Christ. I'm able to pursue Christ-likeness. And one day, the Apostle Paul recognized and realized not only would he be pursuing it, but he would obtain it. And the prize also that was awaiting him, the reward that comes through faithful Christian living. And then we noted the prospect. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, we noted that not only will we ultimately be with Christ forever, not only will we attain to that level of of, uh, that, that is impossible in this flesh. But we will also receive a, a new body, a body that is fashioned like unto his glorious body. It will be adapted to the heavenlies and it will be adapted to this earth as well. What a wonderful, wonderful promise we have in the Bible. What wonderful truths we are confronted with. Here in Philippians, we find a number of reasons to rejoice First, the promise, the prize, the prospect. And today, I want to touch on another one, the peace. Well, we began that already, didn't we? You say, well, we already touched on it. Yeah, well, we're going to keep touching on it because to me, this is a really good reason to rejoice. And so we started talking about this particular peace. Take your Bible, look over Philippians chapter 4, please, verse 6. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. There we read, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, Whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. And the God of peace shall be with you. We noted that as we ended chapter 3, Paul was in the heavenlies. He's talking about our citizenship as believers, that the truth is, is that the world ought to be able to follow us and look at us and, and view our lives and see a, a slice of heaven, if you will. They ought to be able to see what heaven's going to be like as they look at your marriage and your life and, and your family and, and how you respond to the world and the, 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 the situations around you. Amen. And then he comes back down to earth again and he begins to express desire to be reunited with the Philippians. He hasn't seen them for a while and he just wants to take time to meet with them and instruct them and inspire them and to ultimately reflect upon their relationship and tell them how much he cares and loves them. He makes it abundantly clear in the passage how precious and special they are to him 
And he also points out something very important, that they are his crown or they are his reward for faithful service, basically. The Apostle Paul makes it clear that when he considers what has been gained as a result of his Christian life, the sacrifices that he's made in his life on behalf of Christ, he says, if there is a crown of rejoicing, if there is a reason why I, I, uh, anything that is a reward for that effort, it's you, Philippians. It's you. It's your attitude. It's your actions. It's how you've embraced Christ. Every time I think about the sacrifices I've made, I think about you, and I think about how you have allowed Christ to be real in your lives, and it inspires me. If I never receive anything else, just knowing that you have received him and live for him will be enough. The apostle encourages them to stand fast and remain strong in the Lord. See, Satan is always seeking an advantage. He always seeks a stronghold in our lives, in our ministries. And that makes it very difficult to stand at times. And with this in mind, he then turns to a disagreement between two women in the church. We read in Philippians 4, 2, I beseech Eudeus and beseech Thinkgi that they be of the same mind in the Lord. There's a disagreement now. There's a problem in the church. It has infected the entire body. And peace has been lost. The Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians begins to address this peace that they could have, but they forfeited it because of some things. Number one, he goes on to say, listen, if you're going to want peace in your life, if you're going to want to experience that kind of peace, then you're going to need to, you'll find it in prayer and praise. We saw that in verses 6 and 7. If you truly seek peace in your life then, he goes on to say not only will you find it in prayer and praise, but you'll find it in perspective. There in the book of Philippians chapter 4 verse 8, he says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Boy, our peace is so easily lost when we find ourselves dwelling on the wrong things. I'm going to tell you something. You better be real careful in the world we live in today. Boy, I'll tell you what. If you are glued to that television set, you are glued to your little phone or to your computer screen, my friend, there is nothing but chaos and confusion in this world. You will find nothing good, nothing good to rejoice about if you focus on those things. And I'm talking about it from all perspectives. Can I just sum up my whole feelings on all of it in one word? Responsibility. Everyone needs to take responsibilities for their actions here. I'm talking about everyone in the country. And that's where I'll stop with it. Someone says, don't get political on us. No, let's just talk Bible. Be responsible for your actions. And if everyone will be responsible for their actions then we'll come to the right conclusions and we'll get to the bottom of things and make things right on all fronts. Thank you, preacher. We love you for being so clear. Peace, he said, is found in perspective, though. If you are dwelling on the wrong things, you will not have peace in your life, he says. So you have to direct your attention to the proper things. You have to... Think about the right things, the things he lists in the passage. And if you do, guess what? Your mind will be at rest and at peace. 
Hey, we have to guard our thought life. You got to guard that thought life. You can't allow your mind, he says, to fixate on the negative, nor can we allow our imaginations to run amok. We can't let that happen. So we have to guard our thought life. But not only that, he goes on, we have to guide it as well. It's not enough to simply not think on some things. We have to focus our attention on other things. And that's what he's trying to remind us. And so we come to this place where he says, listen, think on these things. And when he's saying that, he's saying, listen, take an account of, think out some things, things that are true and honorable and just, pure, lovely, and of good report. Isn't it interesting when we think of those things, they are characteristics and qualities of none other than Jesus Christ himself. And so I think what the Apostle Paul is really trying to do is say, listen, instead of focusing on the flesh, instead of dealing with the world, instead of allowing yourself to be saturated and consumed with all the chaos and confusion, focus on Christ. Get your attention on Jesus. And if you'll do that, you'll find peace because he is the Prince of Peace. And so if you seek peace, he says, then play by the rules, God's rules. Lift your prayer and praise to God on high. Maintain a positive perspective. And then we come to today's lesson or message. Peace is found in our practice. It's found in our practice. Turn, if you would, to verse 9. You're already probably in the passage. Look at verse 9. The Apostle Paul now stands and he says to the Philippians through this letter, he says, those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. And the God of peace shall be with you. You remember there's a conflict in the church, right? As we said earlier in the chapter, verse 2, we read about these two women who are at each other's throats. They can't see eye to eye, and they have soured the ministry. Their bitterness, their backbiting, their stubbornness has infected the entire body. They go through the halls at church, and when they see each other, they turn their heads. They won't look each other in the eye. Somebody goes by and says, hello, and they go, hi, how are you? There's something wrong. We got a lack of peace here in this church. There's something wrong, and it's affected the entire body. The Apostle Paul is so aware of it. Someone says, oh man, that preacher told him everything that's going on. I'm not so sure if it was the preacher or the Holy Spirit of God, but what I do know is he confronted it. He nailed it right between the eyes, and then he begins to speak as Paul always did with love. But When it's all said and done, there was some pretty poor practice taking place here, and as a result of that, peace was lost. What we're going to find in just a moment as we look at the passage is that the Apostle Paul's going to say, now look at my life. Consider my life. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. I mean, that's not a comfortable place for us, is it? I mean, well, who's the Apostle? Think he is. Let me just say this, if you're a dad today, if you're a mother today, you ought to look at your child and say, I want my child to act like me. I want my child to talk like me. I want my child to live like me. I want my child to think like me. There ought to be an element there where you are convinced that your child needs to become like you. If it's not the case, then maybe it's because your practice is off. The Apostle Paul is stepping up to the plate now, and he's saying, you got a mess here, folks. And I want to encourage you and I want to help you find the peace of God. 
So those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, do. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, you'd speak to our hearts now as we consider this particular thought. May you just drive it home in our hearts. May we be different for having come today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. There's conflict. Paul the apostle steps up to the plate now and he's going to say, now watch, get your eyes on me. Here are these two women. They can't see eye to eye. But he says, you know what? What about me then, folks? He says, okay, you got your problems and you've lost your peace. But wait a second. Look at my life for just a moment. What about me? You saw me live the Christ life before you. How do you think I did that, Paul the Apostle saying? See, I'm made of the same stuff you are. I'm just flesh like you are. I'm, I want you to know that my back bled when it was thrashed by those whips. My, my flesh cringed from pain. My limbs became cramped in the stocks. I knew what it was to be afraid. I know what it is to be disappointed. And I know what it is to be discouraged. We could look at the ch chapter 11 of Corinthians and we could see all that the Apostle Paul endured and gone through. At least what was written for us. And it could be easy for the Apostle Paul to have gotten bitter and angry and upset. And yet the Apostle Paul said, look at my life. I'm living the Christ life. I'm doing my best to appease the Master. I'm trying to please the Lord. And if you want to live right, do what I do. By accentuating the positive and filling my heart and my mind and my soul with the thoughts of Christ, I've been able to overcome See, those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, he says. And the God of peace shall be with you. See, if it's peace that you desire today, then do the right things. Do the right things. It, listen, it doesn't matter how godly a person believes themselves to be. If they neglect simple obedience to God and simple obedience to his word, they are going to lack peace. It doesn't matter how involved you may be in the ministry. I mean, if you disregard right and fail to maintain a proper relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ, then guess what? You're going to forfeit the peace of God. It's just the way it is. You're going to forfeit that. Paul knew what grief was. He had been tormented. He had been persecuted. He knew what it was to be betrayed, and yet he could smile and he could rest peacefully. How in the world could he do that? Because he was right with God. Because he practiced what he preached, the Word of God. Let me ask you, do you practice obedience? I mean, do you practice obedience? I remember being years ago as a kid, I was just a youngster. I, I, I saw some pictures just this last week of me when I was eight years old. Couldn't believe it. A friend of mine from years gone by sent a, a, a picture, a couple of pictures of us in our baseball uniforms playing for the Tigers. I'm telling you right now, I, I mean, I've always been good, but 
Even I had to practice. Okay, so maybe I wasn't always good. But anyway, you get up there to bat, and you had to learn how to swing a bat. You need to learn how to hold a bat. You're going to pick up a ground ball. You had to learn how to pick up that ground ball. Get in front of that young man. Get down on that ball. Boy, they get on you in your case, and they make you practice it over and over and over and over and over and over again. And you know what? You didn't do it right every time. That's why you had to practice. And can I say the Apostle Paul here in the passage, he's crying out and he's saying, listen to me. He's saying, I'm telling you right now, you need to practice obedience in your life. You're not going to get it right every time, but you better practice it. You better stay at it. Don't quit trying to do right. Do you live what you preach? Are you consistent in your life? Does your talk and testimony match your walk and works? See, when we fail to be obedient, we're going to find ourselves tormented with guilt and our consciences will be offended. Listen, we're talking about obtaining or acquiring or possessing peace. The book of Philippians is a wonderful thing. It tells us a little bit about that. Overall, we're saying, why do, why, what reason do we have as believers to rejoice? The peace that we can experience as believers, that's why we have reason to rejoice. But you can circumvent that peace and lose your rejoicing. And you do that when you fail to live as you ought to live. When you fail to practice obedience. Turn, if you would, to John chapter 8, verse 9, please. In John chapter 8, we're going to read about, and we're only going to read one verse, but we're dealing with a a young woman who had been taken in adultery. Now, again, we need to be very clear on this, that there were laws in place that supported stoning people taken in adultery. That is not going to be the issue here. The fact is, is that the law was clear. There is going to be a violation of the law, however, because when we see the passage, if we take time to read it, we're going to recognize that what happened was, even though they took her in the act of adultery, only she was brought before the authorities. Where was the man? How is it that he got off, but she didn't? How is it that she had to come in and face the music, but he didn't? So there's an injustice here in that regard. Now, Jesus Christ is not going to condone her actions, nor is he going to excuse them. What he is going to do, however, is he's going to point to the crowd and say, wait a second, do you realize that there's not one of us in this room that hasn't messed up? And furthermore, you have proven that you aren't going to be honest with the law now. You've been dishonest with the law. And as a result of that, I'm going to point to you and say, first deal with your sin and then worry about someone else's. And so that's what he does. Notice what, he, what happens and how they respond here. In verse chapter 8, verse 9, and the, what, what's Jesus say? It's the famous words. He was without sin, cast the first stone, right? Now, again, that is, not, that is not in any way excusing behavior, sinful behavior. That's not what it's doing. That's not the point here in the passage. It's not a matter of someone goes in your home and shoots one of your family and you're just supposed to go, well, I've got sin in my life too, so who cares? You're good. Just, I'm with sin too, so you just go ahead about your life. I'll go about mine. I don't think so. 
See, there are rules in society, there are laws that are placed there so that we can have order in our culture and our society. Those have to exist. However, I'm glad that I serve a God who lives well beyond this culture, this society, and goes into eternity, and we serve a God who will forgive. But that forgiveness does not eliminate consequences in our life. And so we have to be careful with that. But notice what happens here in John chapter 8, verse 9. And they which heard it, being convicted by their what? Own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. They are being convicted by their own conscience. Now, obviously, these people had a background. These people had a foundation of right and wrong. Somebody had taught them something along the way. I got to believe that everybody in this room right now has a foundation of right in their life. Oh, I'm not saying that we all learned the exact same things. I'm not saying we all grew up with the same influences and cultural uh, differences. I'm just saying this, that you know probably that it's wrong to murder, kill, steal, and all that stuff. You've been taught that. There's something inside you, a compass inside you, that points north all the time. And when you deviate off of north, something inside goes, hmm. It's your conscience. God's place. It's the Holy Spirit utilizing your conscience. And our consciences will convict us in that sense. They'll convince us. They'll cry out for justice. And you know what? According to the scriptures, when you and I abandon a good conscience, we're going to end up shipwrecked. That, what, I, what I take from that is we're going to be broken. We're going to be damaged. That's what a ship is when it's wrecked. It's broken and damaged. When we will violate our conscience, when we will disregard our consciences, when we will not a, abide by our conscience and follow suit and fall into place with our conscience, then we are going to be broken and damaged. Turn to Titus chapter 1, verse 15, please. Titus 1, 15. While you're turning there, I want to read 1 Timothy 1.19. The Bible says, Holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. Wow. I want peace in my life, preacher. Well, if you don't deal with your conscience, if you don't start doing right, my friend, you'll never know peace. Notice Titus 1.15, he goes on to say this, Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. Wow. Not only will we, be, we end up broken and damaged, but our consciences will become defiled or corrupted, leading to an even more serious condition then. You say, more serious than defiled or, uh, uh, you know, corrupted? Absolutely. Turn to 1 Timothy 4, 2 now. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. The apostle now writing to his protege, Timothy, says, speaking lies in hypocrisy, chapter 4, verse 2 of 1 Timothy, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Do you know, according to the scripture then, our consciences can become seared or 
basically come to a place where we feel no guilt even though we practice prolonged rebellion. We can be in the midst of rebellion and we just go through life feeling like we're justified in it. Our conscience is being seared. You say, how's that possible? Well, again, our consciences convict us when we're doing something wrong. We choose to either listen or, uh, to our conscience or disregard the conscience. And if we disregard our consciences, it's going to have a compounding effect. First, we'll have abandoned our conscience. Then we're going to see a defiled conscience. And as a result, we're going to see a seared conscience. We walk away from our conscience and say, I'm, I'm going to disregard my conscience. I know what I'm doing is wrong. I won't change what I do. I'm justified and I'll convince myself at all costs I'm right. Even though I know I'm wrong. And then we'll defile our conscience by doing that over and over again. And before it's over with, after we've defiled our conscience in order to live with ourselves. And I believe there's a little bit more to this than just simply living with ourselves, but we'll sear our conscience. We'll literally burn into our mind. We'll, we'll deaden those, 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 I guess those nerve endings, if you will, in our conscience. To where we can't feel the conviction anymore. Where we can't feel the pain of our conscience anymore. And so we can continue to go about doing wrong and, and, and just blow it off now. How is it that someone can continue to sin as a believer and continue to walk in darkness and, and as a believer now? I know they've been saved out of darkness, but I'm talking about living their life as though they're lost. How is that possible? I think they can get to a place where they literally sear their conscience. Someone says, I don't believe a Christian can do that. It's kind of funny he talks about it. Why would he talk about it if it's not possible? So what's the solution then? What are you and I going to do about that? Turn to Acts chapter 24, verse 16. In order to avoid this pitiful outcome, the Apostle Paul provides us with somewhat of a prescription, if you will. And it's not really that complicated. It's real simple, actually. I am extremely concerned today that in the world we live in, that we've been so desensitized to sin that we are allowing sin to have reign in our lives and we have come to, 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 uh, we, we've come to a place where we've accepted it as normal. We, we've allowed our consciences to, to, to be abandoned. We've permitted our consciences to be defiled. We've allowed our consciences to be seared, if you will, even. Once that conscience gets seared, we got problems. We are raising a generation without consciences. We're not teaching the right and wrong like we used to. Hey, listen, as long as we have this humanistic thinking, as long as we have these, these ideas that, well, what's right for you is right for you, what's right for me is right for me, and no, there are no absolutes, we're in trouble. That's a, that becomes a conscience issue now. I guarantee you this, if you go to certain parts of the world and you run into a cannibal, he'll have no problem killing you and eating you. And he won't think a second thing about it. And if you're not careful, and I'm not careful in the world we live in, the country we're living in, we are teaching a generation that there are no absolutes. Therefore, there's nothing wrong with you living like you want to live. 
and you can live like you want to live, and everybody's fine. We are raising a generation of seared consciences. And we're going to wonder why we can accept the perversion that's taking place in our nation. You talk about trafficking, uh, human trafficking. At the rate we're going, and I'm not trying to be an alarmist, but at the rate we're going, children trafficking will not be any more uncommon than the trafficking that's going on right now. We are such a decadent, disgustingly sinful culture. And we are raising a generation to believe that everyone's right and there are no absolutes. God intended the conscience to work with him and his word. You remove the word of God from the equation and the conscience is useless. It's useless. Acts 24, 16, here it is, the solution or the prescription. Paul the apostle says, and herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Now, I'm just noticing this, okay? But think about it. First, we abandon our conscience. Then we can offend our conscience. Now, now watch this. First, we, we choose to disregard our conscience. Then we offend our conscience. Then it's seared, ultimately. The Apostle Paul says, I herein do exercise myself to have always, what? A conscience void of offense. Do you think the Apostle Paul was above sin? I don't. I think the Apostle Paul warred with sin every day, just like you and I do. I, I'm confident that him knowing the Scriptures was probably even more sensitive to sin sometimes than I am, I'll guarantee you that. He had to make a choice every single day of his life. Will I abandon my conscience? Will I choose to disregard my conscience? I know that I'm wrong, and I know I shouldn't be living like this. I know I shouldn't have said that. I know I shouldn't have done that. I, I know it. I can feel it inside. The Holy Spirit's convicted me through my conscience. I know. What did he do about it? The Bible says he wouldn't allow himself to get to the place where he offended his conscience. He would stop it right there. The moment he knew he was doing something wrong, he made it right then. So there was no chance that he would offend his conscience. Not only, and I want you to notice this, this is very important. He says, and herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God. Oh boy, we, we're good there, right? I want to be right with God. But hold on, he doesn't stop there, does he? A conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. Wow. Now, wait a second. Wait a second. I, I want to be right with God. But you know what? God ain't the one that did that to me. She or he did that to me. They're the one, they said that to me. And you don't understand what I've had to deal with. And you don't know what I've gone through. Mm. I'm justified in what I say. And I'm justified in how I do and live. I don't have to forgive them. You don't know what they did to me. You disobey God's word. I'm telling you right now, you're going to have to abandon your conscience if you know what's right and wrong. 
And then if you abandon that conscience, you're going to offend it sooner or later. And I'm going to tell you what, you can tell me you're right with God all day, but if you're not right with mankind as well, then my friend, let me tell you something. You're going to offend that conscience and even sear that conscience, and you'll never find the peace you're looking for. Now, we're real good about telling everybody how we're right with God. We just have a problem with that person. You know, and if you only knew what was going on and what they did, you would know I was right. Well, unfortunately, God doesn't see it the way you do. The Apostle Paul made it real clear here that he's going to, he's going to exercise himself. The other day, I went down in the, in, in the basement, and, and I have this machine down there, and I exercise myself. i got to be careful. I want to tear that sleeve. Yeah, exercise. When you exercise something, you're working at it. You're working at it. Just because I exercise, that ain't the end all. I don't just exercise once. I got to exercise over and over and over again. And may I say the Apostle Paul saying, listen, I'm going to be confronted with opportunities to offend my conscience or to, to abandon my conscience all the time. I'm going to see the devil throwing his darts at me and I'm going to be caught, uh, uh, tempted to do wrong. And when I do wrong, I'm going to exercise myself. I'm going to keep working at this thing. I'm not going to allow myself or my conscience to be offended, whether it's before God or mankind. Hey, what was going on in the church? Two women were at it. Sadly enough, they had infected the whole congregation. And that's the way it works, see? Oh, I can see them now, each of them in their own self-righteous way going, well, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm right with God. I'm still praying and reading my Bible. I still go to church and teach Sunday school. I'm a soul winner. I just can't stand her. She's wrong and I'm right. And everybody needs to know it too. Boy, I'll tell you what, it divided that church. It caused the whole church to lose its peace. Paul the Apostle stepping up to the plate and he's saying, listen, I love you. And I want you to know what peace is. It's one of the wonderful reasons as a believer we have to rejoice. And I'm telling you right now, you need to pray and praise the Lord. You need to have the right perspective in your life. You need to think on the right things. You need to have the mind of Christ in this situation. And you need to practice right. The apostle, he is exercising or practicing obedience to God's word. He was working very hard at being faithful and consistent in his biblical lifestyle. See, guilt is our warning system to change our actions. If you and I choose to rebel against our Father's commands, we are going to be tormented by guilt and we will never, ever, ever experience peace. All of this around us, what chaos and confusion. That is called Satan at his best. But no matter how chaotic and confusing it can be around us, inside we can experience peace if we'll just be obedient to God and his word and we'll be right with God and mankind. In the Prison Fellowship newsletter called Jubilee, Charles Colson, a number of years ago, mind you, told of a young boy who became excessively afraid during the great New York 
blackout of 1977. It's a long time ago. He was all scared. He was so worried. His parents began to question their son, and he finally confessed that at the exact moment that the lights went out in New York, he had kicked a power line pole. And the very instant he kicked that pole, the lights went out across the city. He thought for sure he was to blame. He was sure he was going to be punished for it too. He had been holding that in. See, there are times when our guilt is misplaced. When there's really nothing to be guilty or feel guilty about. But for the most part, if we lack peace within, it's almost certain that our practice is off. Do right and you will be right. I didn't say everything would turn out right as far as the world is concerned, as far as even you think. But what I'm saying is, is that inside you can have the Prince of Peace reigning and ruling on the throne of your life if you will obey him as you are supposed to. Paul said, listen, he said, I, I'm telling you right now, it's important that those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, you do them, and the God of peace shall be with you. Boy, if the God of peace is with me, then his peace is with me. You want peace in your life? Do right. Obey this blessed book. Be obedient to his commands and his statutes. I'm not talking about the ones that you just agree with. I'm not talking about the ones that are comfortable or convenient. I'm talking about all of them. If we truly want peace within us, we're going to have to live right and be right and do right. You seek peace, then you got to play by the rules. Lift your praise and praise to God on high. Maintain a positive perspective and practice the Bible. How's your practice today? Are you practicing obedience or disobedience? I'm right in 75% of the time. 75% of the situations, I'm right with God. I do exactly what the Bible says. You won't find the peace you're looking for then. You're going to offend that conscience. The Holy Spirit's going to drive you crazy as he reminds you over and over again that Holy, that Holy Spirit will, drive, uh, will convict the, bring conviction through that conscience of yours. Hold on. I, I, I'm right with God, preacher. I mean, I've got this together. I'm doing well. I, for the most part, I mean, I'm right with God, but there is a situation with this person. I just, I, I'm having a hard time forgiving them, and I'm having a hard time. I'm bitter. I'm angry. I'm upset with them. Well, I, you're never going to find the peace you're looking for then. You better deal with that, because Paul the Apostle said he exercised himself to always have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. It's not enough to be 80% right. 90% right. The conscience isn't going to let us off the hook if we just do majority rule. How's your exercise? How's your practice today? Do you know Christ is your Savior? That's a big one, right? Have you obeyed the Lord and receiving and accepting Him? He said He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
He wants to see you saved. He wants to see you forgiven. You just need to come to the Lord today and say, Lord, you're right. I'm a sinner and I deserve to go to hell. But you died for me on Calvary. You paid for my sin. You took my place. And I want you to forgive me. I want you to save me today. Come into my life and be my Savior. Forgive my sin and take me to heaven one day. You know, if you'll cry out to the Lord and trust only him to forgive you, save you, and take you to heaven, he'll do it. It's not complicated. It's so simple, we stumble right over it. Father, we come to you. We thank you for this opportunity that we've had to gather here today and to just consider the simple truths of your word and We're asking you, Lord, to speak to hearts this morning. Lord, there may be those in our midst that are lost without Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that they would recognize their need of you, that they would confess their sin and forsake it and turn to the Lord Jesus as Savior. They would just ask for forgiveness and invite him into their life. Lord, I also pray for the believer today. I pray, Lord, that we'd evaluate our practice, that we would consider our obedience. May you reveal to us, Lord, that if there's something in our life that doesn't belong, that's probably, if not totally, the reason why we can't find peace already, because we've allowed those things that don't belong there, our conscience, Being spurned on by the Holy Spirit is bringing great conviction in our life and we'll never find peace within until we start to take steps without. Father, please work in our hearts and our lives. And Lord, if there's something going on in our life today, may you just help us to be honest with ourselves. Confess it, forsake it, and experience the peace of God. What a wonderful reason to rejoice your peace. But we'll forfeit that peace if we do not allow our lives to line with your word. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Every head